not really spoken to um, too many people. I mean, some people like yourself have got in touch over the years, but um, I don't know. I mean, I tell anyone who asks about it, but just uh, not a lot of people have asked about it, really. I find that hard to believe. Well, you know, people are obviously more interested in talking to the actors. No, I really want to talk to the people behind the scenes. Eh? No, come on. I, I, I respectfully disagree. Anyway, so what do you... How do you want to do this? Yeah, well, um, sure, to begin with, I think it would just be great if um, I could just get you to introduce yourself and uh, maybe you could also just um, tell me in a sentence what it is we're here to talk about today. Yep. So, my name is Graham Owens. I was a prop artist for 22 years in the film business and uh, I was the person who created the manuscript that you see Jack Nicholson typing in the film, The Shining. You typed it. Yeah, I typed it. The whole thing. Graham, I uh, I think this prop, yeah. the uh, the prop of Jack Nicholson's manuscript in The Shining, I think it might be one of the most famous props in the whole history of cinema, right? I mean, it's up there with, I don't know, like the Maltese Falcon. I'm, I'm trying to think of other iconic props. I think the uh, Jacob's Ladder Machine in Frankenstein might be quite a contender. The original 1931, do you know what I mean? Yeah. In Frankenstein's laboratory. Yeah, he's got at least three of them dotted around the place. You know, the, the jars with the two wires standing up and the kind of like the arc of electricity. A prop like that, when it, you know, when a, when a prop becomes truly iconic, and it is quite a rare thing, you know, it sort of becomes it becomes synonymous with the story itself, you know. So you know, even if you saw one in a, in a charity shop or a rubbish tip, it still reminds you of the film in some way, you know. And I, and I think that's that's what you get with the old. Jacob's Ladder. You can't see the thing without thinking Frankenstein, can you? Yeah. Also, um, you know, just think about how boring Frankenstein's lab would have looked without all that electricity flying about the place. It really, it transforms the scene, doesn't it? It makes the whole set feel alive and uh, dangerous. I mean, you put one of those in your house and uh, immediately your house becomes Frankenstein's lab, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, I think you could argue that um, Jack Torrance's novel in The Shining is... Equally, equally synonymous with the story of The Shining. I mean, that stack of paper, it's, uh, it, it's definitely one of the things that I think of when I first think of that film. In fact, I'd argue that maybe your manuscript is, is perhaps even more iconic than those electricity things in Frankenstein. Because like, if you think about it, like your manuscript, it's not just set dressing or atmosphere. Like, it's pretty central to the plot. I mean, the introduction of your prop, it has such a, it's such a dramatic reveal that, um, that like, as soon as we see it, it's like, bam, it immediately alters the course of the film, right? It really propels the last act of the story forward. It's, uh, it's hard to think of another scene in a film where there's like a, there's like a close-up of an object that without any human presence in the shot whatsoever, like simply by being given a chance to like look closely at this one object, a whole understanding of like the stakes of the film completely changes, right? And that's all down to like an object. Now, I can't even think of another film where that happens at all. Well, uh, Citizen Kane, of course. All right, Citizen. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's incredibly rare, right? Like, props don't get a lot of dramatic close-ups, is kind of my point. And on those rare occasions, they do get close-ups. Those scenes, they really they really stick in the public consciousness, don't they? Yeah, well, that's just, um, that's just visual storytelling. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we do, really. It's not always as obvious as the, uh, the examples we've been discussing here, but visual storytelling is always... I mean, it's always the most powerful way to get something across to an audience. You know, just let them see it. You know, just let them see it. Right, 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 right. Now, this is why they say show, don't tell, isn't it? Yeah. 
like the visual side of our brains is, is, is immediate. We see something, we instantly know what it means, right? We don't have to translate it into words in order to understand it. Like we feel it on an instinctive level. Whereas dialogue, right, that always has to be rooted through the language processing part of our brains first. Like we have to interpret it before we understand it. So like words are always slower to process than images, right? Sure. Obviously, this is a um, depressing thing for me to talk about as a storyteller working in an entirely verbal medium. <laughs> I think it does make it quite hard for me to, uh, to work in horror as a genre, specifically modern horror, right? Because I, I never get to just show my audience a striking thing and have the significance of that thing like instantly known. I always have to describe the thing, right? And then listeners kind of assemble the horror themselves in their heads, like flat pack furniture. So yeah, if I ever try to do horror, it always ends up being a very, uh, very Victorian. Let's not to say that words still can't be really powerful. In fact, yeah, well, well, words can be powerful, obviously, but uh, they're just no good for jump scares. <laughs> I mean, you could just dead body do it like that, but uh, I suppose <laughs> no, it doesn't really work, does it? Anyway, yeah, films are visual storytelling first and foremost, of course. So yeah, if Stanley Kubrick wants us to know that uh, Jack. Nicholson has lost his mind. That Jack Nicholson has lost his mind. Then, yeah, he can hit us with that information succinctly in a single image rather than, you know, have someone endlessly describing it to us, you know, blathering on and on and on for pages of dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as I say, uh, I'm good to convey a thousand words. Yeah. Yeah. Except, <laughs> well, except, of course, in the case of this particular prop, Graham. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, in this, yeah. In this particular example, I mean, I probably had to type out about 10,000 <laughs> words. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that Stanley took all the words I typed and then he photographed them. So eventually, you know, he turned all those words back into a single image again. So it's visual storytelling again. Yeah. So that single image, probably, that was probably worth. So that's like, um... you know, like a thousand times, 10,000 words. So yeah, yeah, what is that? It's like like a, a hundred million words. Yeah. Yeah, I think you could well argue that. Sure. I mean, as a manuscript, it uh, certainly feels bigger on the inside, I can tell you that much. Sure. This is slightly confusing, isn't it? I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we're getting, <laughs> we're getting, uh, getting ahead of ourselves. Anyway. So let's um, back up a second. For anyone listening to this who hasn't seen The Shining, how would you describe the scene in, in which this this prop of yours appears? Well, okay, so it's, uh, it's Chad Nicholson and his family uh, looking after this hotel over the winter. But it's supposed to be in Colorado, I think. But uh, it was actually a series of sets in England, uh, I think, Four of the nine stages, uh, L Street were given over to it. Very, very big stages. So anyway, Jack Nicholson's character, who um, is called... Also Jack. Yeah, also Jack. So anyway, he's, 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 he's supposed to be spending the winter writing a novel. He took this janitor's job so he could work on his novel. So he spends a lot of the film clacking away at his uh, typewriter, you see. But then... Towards the end of the film, there's this moment where Jack's away somewhere else in the house and uh, his wife comes over to his desk to see how a novel's going. And what she does is she looks at the paper in the typewriter and she discovers that Jack, he's, uh, he's basically, he's just been typing out the phrase. Uh, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah, he's written out those words, just written out those words over and over and over again. That's all it says right down the page, right? And then uh, Shelley, she looks over at the big stack of papers sitting next to the typewriter, the rest of the novel. How many pages would you say? 
that's about a reams worth on screen, so that's about 480 pages. But okay. I'll, I'll say more about the length in a minute. Okay. So, Jelly starts to flick through Jack's novel, and turns out that every single piece of paper is filled with that exact same sentence. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah, exactly. So page after page after page. Yeah, and that's the moment that Shelley Duval basically did. That's the moment that she goes, oh no. Right. My husband. Yeah. You know, he's gone bananas. Right. Soon after that, uh, Jack's chasing her around with a huge sword and... Uh, it's an axe, isn't it? You know, it? soon after that, is it an axe? It's an axe. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I was in my department. Yeah, yeah, you know, he, he chases her with an axe. I mean, it's awful stuff, really, isn't it? I mean, it's awful stuff. You know, I never particularly had the stomach for it. That's interesting. Graham, would you say that, like... Would you say that you weren't a fan of the film? Eh... Uh, well, it's complicated, really, because um, working on The Shining, I mean, it really had a profound effect on me. You know, it really did. It, it, you know, it was it was hard at times. I mean, it was savage, you know, utterly savage. But um, ultimately, it, it, it changed my life incredibly. You know, it really did. It, it changed the whole way that I, uh, really the whole way I think about the world. And, um, you know, I don't regret a second of it. You know, if I could do everything all over again, I uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Okay. What you've got to understand, though, is that, like, um, having gone through the experience of writing that manuscript, like, I feel like what I lived through, like, my experience, that was, like, the real thing. And uh, the film, for me, uh, you know, just feels a little bit like a uh, bad dramatization of uh of my experience and it just feels all wrong to me you know it just feels wrong i mean the film it just doesn't really it doesn't capture for me really uh what the whole thing was really like right because when you were typing out the manuscript to elstree studios for example i'm gonna guess uh you weren't being tormented by an old naked lady ghost no, that, that did not happen to me. No, I don't think. And also, presumably, you didn't finish the final page and then go home and try to murder your family? No, 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 not really. I mean, which is not to say that there aren't other aspects of the film that I do relate to. Right. Well, you know, not the family murdering stuff, no. There's more nuanced things in the film. Sure. But overall, <clears throat> yeah, I think the whole thing is just a bit dramatic. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I don't really want to return to the film too much, really. In the end of the day, I, uh, I'm really glad I worked on that manuscript, and I don't want the film to colour my experience too much, you know, and change what I went through from being this, this positive experience and being, you know, like this, uh, this evil Jack Nicholson thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I actually, I'm, I'm sort of like the opposite to um, Jack Nicholson's character. You know, I'm a very calm person, you see. People actually have a nickname for me. What is it that they call you? Yeah, 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 they call me Unflappable Graham. Okay. Yeah, you know, I think people are people find it hard to understand why I'm so positive about this experience. But um, I think I can explain it to you. I can, but um when we get to it proper, um It'll make sense. So I, I worked out this whole way I can explain it to you. So, yeah, it, I think it's going to make sense. So how did you end up working on the film? Well, yeah, I mean, I actually grew up in Hertfordshire. Uh, you know, just a little village a couple of miles down the road from Elstree Studios, actually. A little village called Ridge. Okay. Uh, if you... Uh, no. No, well, yeah, as a young guy, I um, I don't really have any ambitions in... Um, Working in the uh, in the old pitches, certainly not in the prop department. But you know, I was just out of school, and uh, you know, I was looking for a job. And uh, I had the fortune to meet Ron Punter through a friend of a friend, Ron, uh, who worked as a 
scenic artist up at Elstree, and he worked on Star Wars famously, as well as um, 2001 for Stanley, and uh, everyone offered to put in a word for me with the props department, and yeah, that's, that's how I ended up working on The Shining for my first job, which, uh, you know, talk about getting thrown in at the deep end. So yeah, Stanley arranged for me to have this little office on the back lot, just a store cupboard really, and um, basically I was just left to it, you know, me and the typewriter. What was your relationship like with the rest of the crew? <laughs> I didn't really have one. I actually didn't really have one, which was part of Stanley's big idea, really. You know, I wasn't supposed to mingle with the... Um... Stanley had already made all the decisions about how I was going to get set up. You know, he knew he wanted me separated from the rest of the crew. So, yeah. So the only person I really met properly was Roy, really. That's Roy. That's Roy Walker, the art director. Yeah, first day, Roy showed me to my cupboard and uh, where I get the tea and coffee. And um, I mean, I check in with Roy from time to time, but that was pretty much it, I think. So tell me about the room. You know, just a cupboard, small, very small. It had a kind of petrolly smell. So hard to think about first impressions, really, because that was the you know the worst part of the whole process. But uh, after a while, though, I didn't really notice the smell. And um, after a couple of weeks, I pretty much stopped noticing anything. I imagine it was a bit like um, doing lines in school detention. Yeah, I, I just suppose that. The idea is that repetition is supposed to make something stick in us deeper, right? But actually, I mean, in my own limited experience, that kind of thing, yeah, I think the the sentence that we're writing out, it just really quickly becomes like white noise, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, really, after even like the first 10 minutes, I never really gave another thought to the the original meaning of the sentence. I mean, I have to, even now, I've got to think really hard about it to, you know, to remember you know, what actually, you know, I suppose Jack's, I suppose what he's implying is, oh, yeah, you know, I really have to stop working and start murdering people, right? That's that's sort of what it means. Yeah, yeah. I oh, know, I suppose that's it. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But, you know, hmm. just a bunch of random letters to me. It's just a, it's just a sequence. I was going to um ask you about whether you had any celebrity tales, Graham, but, I mean, if Kubrick was keeping you isolated, then... Yeah, I just, I just suppose that you never. It was one time, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I was, um, I was speaking with Scatman Crothers, you know, um, outside the lavies. Just talk about the weather. I think, you know, is it going to rain later? That sort of thing. When, um, you know, suddenly, I don't even know where he came from, but like suddenly, like Stanley's just standing next to us both, materialised out of thin air. Do that, and Stanley. Uh, he says to Scatman, please don't bother Graham. He's got a very important novel to write. And if he gets too distracted, you see, he'll have to throw the whole thing in the bin and start over. Scatman Crothers was all, oh, yeah, right you are, Mr. Kubrick. And uh, with that, Stanley just, uh, he just stepped onto a passing steady cam rickshaw and the thing just silently whisked him away around the corner. Graham, Kubrick never actually made you start over, did he? Because that would, that sounds incredibly cruel. Yeah, well, well we, we did officially start over once. Um, yeah, after the first four weeks. Four weeks? You know, well, I, I don't think that was a punishment, necessarily. I mean, when I first started, it was on a different paper stock, you see. It was on a paler, whiter stock. But then uh, word came down from Stanley that he wanted to change it to this other stock that would absorb the light differently. So, yeah, yeah, I had to start over. <laughs> God. Yeah, it was a bit painful at the time. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty close to finishing. <laughs> but now I was, yeah, I was literally back to uh, page one. God, yeah, I suppose I was hoping that um, once I got the manuscript finished, they would let me have a go on set building and I could actually learn something, you know. But, yeah, instead, it was looking like I was going to spend, well, you know, at least another four weeks stuck in the cupboard. Jeez. 
I mean, like I said, like in the end, all these um, trials and tribulations, you know, they're all worth it. But yeah, I was pretty upset. But there's this, um, there's this thing I remember from an old uh, Steamboat Willie cartoon, where um, I don't know if you know it, but uh, yeah, Steamboat Willie is a uh, he gets imprisoned on uh, the brig of a ship and. Uh, someone forces him to peel potatoes, and the cartoon it uh, it just loops the same frames of animation of uh, Willie peeling potatoes over and over and over. But just because of the cheapness of the animation, uh, like the pile of unpeeled potatoes on his left never gets any smaller, and uh, the pile of peeled potatoes on his right never gets any bigger. And uh, yeah, that's basically how my life felt. Sure, it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, Sisyphus, isn't it? And the boulder. Yeah, sure. I mean, I used to walk a temporary metaphor, but it's the same thing. <laughs> okay. Anyway, now it's just the start of it, as it turns out. Because um, just as I was starting on the new stock, someone came and uh, <laughs> pinched my radio. <laughs> Usually, when I typed, I listen to the cricket on this uh, portable radio that I bought in from home. Yeah, someone let themselves into my cupboard overnight and made off with it. I tell you, I was livid. Yeah, I imagine that made it much harder. First couple of days without the radio, I was, I was really clock watching. You know, you know, every hour felt like five. You now, so following week, I go tell Roy and uh, I tell him I can't do this. You know, I need a radio. Roy says, you know, just go borrow one from the gaffers. So I go get it. Bring you back to my room. Next morning, though, can you guess what happened? It's gone again. Gone again. Yeah. <laughs> Same as last time. Nicked. Room's locked when I come in, so I don't know how, but yeah. Okay. So I go borrow another radio, this time from makeup, and same thing happens again. Gone. So soon, I'm scared to walk around set because everyone's like, Graham, when are you bringing back my radio? And I don't know what to tell them, so just start eating lunch in my room. Which is probably exactly what he wanted, right? With Stanley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, you're getting a bit ahead of me there. <laughs> so it was Kubrick. It was Kubrick taking your radios. Well, you know, probably wasn't him doing it himself, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think he got someone else to do it. I mean, I don't have any proof one way or the other. But, uh, I mean... Yeah, me talking about it now. We can say either yes, he did, or no, he didn't. I mean, it doesn't really matter either way, does it? But like at the time, yeah, at the time, yeah, I did think it was him, because even though I you know I was being kept in isolation, I already knew a thing or two about Stanley Kubrick. The one thing that everyone knows about Stanley is that he doesn't like anything to be artificial. You know, he wants everything to be real. You know, if something feels artificial. Then it then it stands out, right? And that can end up disrupting the story, you see. And that's why he always did so much research. That's why uh that's why his art design is always so like incredibly meticulous, you know. I mean he was probably the most demanding, most thorough, most like detailed filmmaker in the history of cinema, right? And also, we now know a uh Radio Snatcher. I mean, he never admitted it to me. He never would. I never thought he would, you know, because uh, if he ended up calling attention to it, even later, you know, that would defeat the point, wouldn't it? You know, because that would, that would expose something as being artificial. And, you know, he would hate that. Stanley was thorough, but, like, he was never showy, right? And I, and I mean, as an example, uh, around the time that I came on board to write Jack's manuscript, the, uh, the art department were just finishing the gold room. I don't know if you know about the gold room. Yeah. It's the ballroom where Jack goes to drink sometimes. Well, Stanley has someone individually paint thousands of tiles, right? Thousands for the ceiling. You look at that ceiling, it doesn't look like a set, does it? Like It looks absolutely real. But the thing is, when something looks real, like you just don't think about it because it doesn't seem like a creative choice, right? It just seems natural. So really what I'm saying is, you know, like when something looks real, it becomes invisible. And when a set becomes invisible, then it's influencing you without you even realizing that it's there. And I think that right there, I think that is the secret of good art design. 
So you do understand what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do. But um, yeah, making something appear uncrafted and natural can often take like a, a huge amount of work. Yeah. Okay. It's important that you understand that. All right. For what's going to follow. Yeah. So, right. So you thought Stanley Kubrick wanted you to suffer through the typing process because he wanted your manuscript to be authentic, i.e. the work of someone who was slightly losing their grip on reality. I mean, that's Stanley. And yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, maybe just like a little suspicious to begin with. Maybe just a little suspicious that someone was messing with me. But uh, then, then he starts coming after my family. So uh, my mum's at home when uh, this call comes through from production. This is how she told it anyway. And uh, this voice says, Mrs. Owens, this is the office of Mr. Kubrick. Your son's not turned up for work in three weeks, so we're terminating his contract. Bear in mind, I'm actually at work, at the studio, when this phone call comes through. Right? I get home that night, and my mum, you know, who's a a fiery woman, my mum. You know, we clashed a lot when I was growing up. But uh, this was probably one of the worst fights that we ever had because um, I didn't finish school, you see. I was expelled two days before exams. That was a huge fight as well. But in the end, I, uh, you know, I stopped her from throwing me out by promising I was going to get a job straight away and earn my keep. So now she hears I've apparently sacked off this job. She thought I was, I don't know, running around town with my mate, something like that didn't really matter what I said, you know, she wasn't having any of it. Eventually, um, I convinced her to let me call back the studio, but um, the person I got in the office, they were, uh, yeah, they were adamant, where they just said, look, I just passed on the messages, this came from Mr. Kubrick's secretary herself. I told them, I'm working in the cupboard. Every day, go ask Roy Walker, go ask Ron Punter, go ask Mr. Kubrick. They said, look, if it comes from Mr. Kubrick's secretary, that's as good as coming from Mr. Kubrick himself. Also, I've never seen you around here. Jeez. Yeah, it was confusing. I, re- I remember being very confused. Also, I work for Embry. I'm 18, right? This is my first job. I was supposed to be in the union, but my union paperwork hadn't come through yet. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Anyway, after that phone call, all hell breaks loose again. She's angry, I'm angry, and um, mum ends up screaming so much that uh, she gives herself a nosebleed. You know, it's a long story, but um, basically, you know, we both knew that she was ill. You know, she hadn't been diagnosed yet. Oh shit! What was it? Uh, polycythemia vera. Some it's blood related. It's quite hard to spot unless you get tested. As I say, like we both knew something was wrong, but she wouldn't go to a doctor about it. And okay, and I was bleeding anyway. Pretty much ended the fight, and uh, she went upstairs to bed. And uh, what year is this? Some nineteen seventy-eight. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, she died. Maybe less than a year. After this uh, whole story, yeah, I mean, she died before the film came out. Sadly, I'm, I'm so sorry. That's fine. You know, whatever happened happened, and uh, yeah, there's no point getting upset about it, is there? Anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the last thing that she told me before going to bed that night was that uh, I was going to spend all of tomorrow with her at the dining table, going through the job pages. But, uh, you know, I end up getting up before her. And, you know, I have to go back to Elstree. I have to try and explain that they made a mistake. So, uh, yeah, I end up slipping out without waking her, thinking, you know, I can get this all sorted before she even wakes up. Okay. But I get back to Elstree, half expecting to have to beg for my job, right? And uh, they're just like, 
Hello, Graham. You're a bit late. I'm like, what? Graham, this is diabolical. Like, no mention of the phone call. The office. I'm like, no, there's no one even in the office after 7pm. I don't know who you spoke to. Christ. <laughs> yeah. As you can guess, like, my head's reeling from this. Suddenly, Stanley appears at the door and he's like, Graham, change your plans. We're now shooting the manuscript this Thursday. Everything's getting moved up. So I need it from you tomorrow morning at the latest. Can you work late tonight to get it finished? I say to Stanley, finished? You know, like, I've barely started on the new stock. Stanley just says, well, I believe in you, Graham. And then he uh, stepped onto a passing steady cambric shore and it silently whisked him away around the corner. This is... Wow. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. So what did you do? Oh, yeah, I got to work. Basically, that's what I did. I mean, I had now, like, at least a fortnight of typing. But suddenly I needed to get done by the following morning. So I knew it was going to be an all-nighter. No two ways about it. So did you um, did you get someone to call home and explain it to uh, your mum? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I asked them to. <clears throat> all the phones were in use at the time. But, uh, yeah, I made someone promise that as soon as the phone was free, that, you know, someone would call my mum and uh, explain the whole mix-up. Yeah. But, uh yeah, it did play on my mind a little bit. I won't lie. You know, just in case my mum had thought I'd just run away with a circus or something. Like I said, we probably had our worst fight ever the previous night, and uh, I didn't like it hanging over my head. And you think the like the whole phone call thing with the studio sacking you and then not sacking you you think that was something that Stanley Kubrick orchestrated specifically to mess with you? Mm, yeah. I mean, immediately to begin with, I was too upset. But yeah, you know, by the time I walked from the office back to my cupboard to start typing, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty convinced that uh, someone was messing with me. You know, I must admit, that's also why I didn't really trust anyone to actually call my mum and sort out the misunderstanding, you know. Which was did I have? I had to leave him to it because I needed to get going immediately because otherwise I was going to miss my deadline and, and maybe I would get sacked. What about the sudden change in schedule? What, forcing the all-nighter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was intentional as well. Jesus. In many ways, Graham, like your story is also a horror story. It's just, you know, rather than being about ghouls and ghosts, yours is about uh, bullying in the workplace and toxic crunch culture. Well, you know, I know it sounds bad. And yeah, I was under a huge amount of stress at the time. But like I said earlier, if I could go back, seriously, I still, I wouldn't change a thing. Wouldn't change a thing. Because now... But when I reflect back, like I can see that like this, this the pain. It's all part of the experience, right? It's like uh, people do the old um, extreme mega marathons, you know, stuff like that. Sometimes you just got to, you have to suffer. <laughs> it's it in order to learn something vital about the world. Yeah, did you think that at the time? No, 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 I didn't think that at the time. No, at the time, <laughs> I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yeah, no, at the time it seemed quite pointless. Quite pointless. And, uh, yeah, no, I was definitely worried about my mum, about uh, making her more sick. And uh, I was also worried that I might even complete this manuscript and still not get paid for it because, you know, maybe my contract had actually been cancelled, you know. That there was, you know, someone somewhere in the company that was going to stop me getting paid for this, you know. I mean, often in film, right like as you probably know like left hand doesn't often know what the right hand's doing and it, it did feel possible that uh yeah maybe i was putting myself and my mum through all this for for absolutely nothing you know all these pages and thousands and thousands of words you know all for nothing that's um yeah that's uh it's quite a horrible feeling yeah yeah yeah, yeah at the time it yeah, it did make me feel quite nauseous. So, 
Can you paint a picture for us? You, you, you sat back at your typewriter in your cupboard and you can't go home until this manuscript is finished, which is how many pages? Stanley wants 480 pages. You've got... I've got about 30. No radio. Radio's gone again. And now you have to pull an all-nighter. Yeah, I've got a thermos of tea and some ham sandwiches and I tell myself, I'm not coming out of this room until I'm finished. You know, I wasn't really thinking about the typing or the keys or anything. It's just, you know, I was just thinking about my mum, really. So the sun goes down. <laughs> yeah, the sun goes down. And, uh, you know, there's still crew on set till about 10 p.m. So I could still hear construction going on nearby. I knew that the art department, actually, they'd, uh, they'd recently been tasked with a lot of new stuff. Apparently, um, Stanley had taken over uh, yet another lot. Uh, Elstree, and there was now, as I understood it, uh, like a whole new set being built at short notice. So, yeah, I could hear quite a lot of banging and whatnot until quite late. Yeah, then around, I don't know, um, like maybe half midnight. This thing's been quiet for a little while when there's um, there's this, uh, this new sound. Hang on, hang on, sorry, what, what kind of sound? Uh, I can make it for you if you want. Uh, hang on. Okay. It's, uh... How are you making that? Graham. <laughs> Graham. Oh, Graham. Right. Something like that. What was that? Did you like that? Just, um, I'm just flicking a hairbrush. But it's quite an accurate recreation of what what i think i heard all right but what was it but um what was it that you actually heard well yeah exactly i mean that's what i wanted to know okay but what was it all right so i came out of my cupboard and um i went out into the road and it's not public roads i mean it's bright the private road right that connects together all the separate film lots and um graham can you give me just like one more clean take of your um hairbrush foley Okay. Okay, because then I can just like sample it and I can use it in the sound design later. Okay. All right. Hang on. Awesome. Thank you. It's good to uh, find a use for a hairbrush, even after you lose your hair. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be my mum's actually. Bit of a useless heirloom for old Baldy here. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway, it was uh, incredibly dark outside. Like you know. I'd never been on set this late before. And, um, yeah, the only light at all was the light that was coming from my room. Everything else was just pitch black. It's quite eerie, really, you know. There was just, like, the tiniest slither of uh, moonlight on the tarmac. But, yeah, that was pretty much it. So, So then I hear the sound again. It felt close before, but um, like this time it felt like it was like, further away, like somewhere down the road. I can't work out. I, I don't know what it is. But yeah, I uh, decided to go check it out. So were you scared? I was tired and, uh, yeah, paranoid. I didn't ask you before, but um, do you, do you believe in the supernatural? Graham. No. No, I don't believe in ghosts and stuff, you know. You live until you die. That's that. Okay. No, no, I, I didn't really think this was anything spooky. But, uh, I thought someone was out there. Well, like, someone on the payroll. Someone sent by Stanley, yeah. Yeah, like, someone trying to mess with me, yeah. And, uh, 
yeah, I was done with being messed with bringing my mum into this. You know, I was furious. No, I was ready to punch someone's lights out. No, I don't blame you. I was so tired. You know, have you ever been so tired that uh, your skin doesn't feel like it's quite yours anymore? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I do. Yeah, since COVID, I've had um, insomnia myself. So, yeah, I um, yeah, another feeling. Yeah, <laughs> like you're almost uh, like a different creature walking around in a in a human suit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's how I feel that night. Sometimes when my insomnia is really bad, I uh, I start to feel like there's two voices in my head, like one giving me all the reasons I need to sleep, and then the other's giving me all the reasons that I need to stay awake. And like these two voices, they just get louder and louder until I start to feel like I'm separating into two different people. Mm. Yeah, it's slightly worrying. Sorry, Graham, please. Sorry, um, yeah. Uh, I'm tired and uh, looking for a fight. And uh, when I hear the sound again, it's uh, coming from an open door on the street. Turns out it's one of the doors to the uh, sound stages. Not one I'd actually been in before. It's actually the new space that uh, Stanley had only just started renting. You know, for those new sets that had just been commissioned. Graham, like, timeline-wise, this all seems a bit strange, because, like, Kubrick's told you that he's shooting the typewriter scene this week, but yet, like, brand new sets are still being commissioned. Like, that doesn't sound, yeah, like, quite I know, right. I know, I know, I know it doesn't make any sense. But, I mean, I can, I can only tell you what I saw. Kubrick was still building new stages even when we were in the middle of the shooting schedule. Like, the plan always seemed to be changing. Okay. Anyway, the door of the stage was wide open. Someone had left it unlocked. Yeah, I could hear the sound inside. I tried looking in, but you couldn't see your hand in front of your own face. I remembered I had like a little battery-powered lantern back in my cupboard, so I went and got that. Then I uh, came back to the door. Whoever it was, you know, they wanted me to follow them. So I thought, you know, what the hell? The little lantern didn't give off a huge amount of light. But now at least I could see a few feet in front of me. I was in this long utility corridor. I could hear the sound somewhere down the other end, right? Somewhere in the darkness. I get to the far end of the corridor and uh, I could see that the door at the far end has been taken off its hinges and just um, propped in place. So I squeeze through, and uh, now I'm in this large square room. There's some um, filled with doors. It's just door next to door next to door, like about like 50 doors, like barely any wall space between them at all. It's just doors all the way around surrounding me. So now I know but they were all like prop doors for the scene where Jack smashes up the bathroom door at the end of the picture. You know, right. Right, with his... his you know, uh, with the sword. With his axe. With the axe, yeah. Turns out that Stanley had commissioned 50 trick bathroom doors so they could film that scene for as many times as they needed. And all these doors, they were all differing strengths and weaknesses so they could experiment, you see. And uh, <laughs> like this here, this was just a storeroom next to the workshop where they were making them. But uh, at the time, the dark with only this little lantern light. It's a little uh, <laughs> a bit overwhelming. I was so tired that uh, once I was standing in the middle of the room, I couldn't actually remember which door it was I squeezed past to get in. You know? Shit. Yeah, I got turned around a couple of times and uh, yeah, every direction just looked the same. 
I started moving the doors, you know, I'm looking for a way back, but every time it was just blank wall. Yeah. Blank wall. Blank wall. I can see why that was. I started losing it. Yeah. Surrounded by all these doors, all these uh, possibilities, and yet none of them are real. You can see why, like, I might start to feel like all this was some kind of message. What, like, from Stanley? What do you say? I don't want to get in the way of this story. Graham, you know, I I just want to know what you think. Well, no, mostly in this moment, I'm just thinking to myself, what the fuck am I doing? To get back to my typewriter, because I had so many pages still to type. And my mum might have been worried sick, and I didn't even know if I had a job or not, or whether hanging out in a creepy hall full of doors is just like, you know, what I do for fun now, because it's not that fun, really. So and I'm, uh, I'm not joking here, but like, this is when, like, the batteries on my lantern pack in. And, like, suddenly, I'm, like, totally in darkness. I hear the sound again, but this time, like, it's so close to me. It's, like, right at my feet. Like, right in front of me. I don't know, maybe it's like the total darkness, but I don't feel like there's a tough guy suddenly. And I don't know whether it's a crew member trying to freak me out, or like an animal. Well, you think it could have been an animal? Yeah, maybe. Like what? I don't know. Could have been a squirrel, I suppose. I don't know. But I just start, like, hopping foot to foot. Like I'm doing this dance, almost, right, to try and get away from it. Suddenly I noticed that there's a there's a crack of light coming from behind one of the doors. Like I couldn't see it before because of a lantern light. But uh, but now it's dark, but I can make it out. So I, I dash for that door, right? I was trying to get back out the way I came, but uh, somehow I've ended up on this other corridor. And, and, and the light, it turns out, like that's coming from one of the doors halfway down. So yeah, one of the stages, it turns out, still got all its lights on. It's like this door halfway down, it's like, it's lit up. So now I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe some guys are still working in there. Okay. So I go through the door and, I mean, I got some big stages at L Street, but this might have been one of the biggest, it's like an aircraft hangar. And um, in the middle of this hangar, um, crew, they've uh, they, they, they built this thing. I couldn't see what it was from the door, because you know, from the outside of a set, it just looks like a bunch of big wooden boxes from the outside. All you can see are the exposed timber frames. But I can tell that inside this big box, like the whole thing is, it's it's lit up. Okay, so this is one of the sets from The Shining. Well, right. Um, yes and no. Okay. I walk around the edge of the set, right, trying to find a way in. Somehow that sound was ahead of me again. It was now it's coming from somewhere inside the set. I could hear it. I called out to see if anybody was in there, but uh, no answer. No. Eventually, I uh, I find the door. Graham, I'm like half expecting you to tell me that it was like set at the moon landings <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly what it was really no it's 1978 like think about the timeline yeah, okay, uh, yeah sure sure, sure. I, I'm doesn't sorry. make any sense uh, obviously go, please go on alright so I go inside and uh, yeah sure enough there I am inside the Overlook Hotel a room you know, a suite within the hotel, uh, to be specific. They'd already built one suite on another lot, but um, this one, this was much bigger than the other hotel room I'd seen, right? And it was incredible. It looked 
absolutely incredible. Like, I couldn't believe how quickly this thing must have been put together. I mean, the art team, they must have been, they must have been working like demons to get this thing finished in time because like, like Stan had only rented this stage like a couple of weeks ago, absolute tops. Really? Yeah, really. As soon as you stepped into that space, you, you, you felt as if you'd been immediately translated. I mean, you were no longer standing in a freezing cold warehouse in home counties, England. Like, you were right there. You were in that hotel. You were in The Shining. Yeah, 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 you were in The Shining. So, like, which suite of the hotel had you walked into? Because I can only think of old room 237. No, 237 was the only other lot. Okay. Like, this suite was, like, much, much bigger than 237. Yeah, much bigger. Now, I found out later that, uh, like, this set, like, this one that I've found, like, it was actually the Overlook Hotel's presidential suite. Huh. Yeah, if that doesn't ring a bell, it's because Stanley didn't end up using the set in the end. Yeah, I was I was going to say. No, nah, no, nah, the presidential suite does not appear in the finished picture. Apparently it is in the original novel. Yeah. And Stanley did shoot some scenes in there, but like they didn't make it into the final film. Wow, you know, all that work. Well, yeah, well, that's, that's Stanley, you know. Like, he doesn't take shortcuts. If he thinks something is worth doing, right, he'll do it. Yeah, like he'll spend the money. He'll take whatever action he needs to take to get the best results. Sure, I mean, if you have the budget to chase down every idea, I suppose you can, can afford to make mistakes, right? Sorry? I just mean, like, you know, he built this set for nothing in the end. Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. So this is kind of like coming across a deleted scene, right? This is kind of cool. Like, it's like a previously unearthed deleted scene. Yeah, yeah. So what does this room, uh, what does it look like? Like, uh, striped wallpaper. Silk wallpaper. Red and white stripes. Mahogany bed, four poster. I remember um, all the sheets were mussed up, you know, like someone had just got out of bed. One wall of the room had, uh, had a curtain pulled right across it. And uh, there was a large window on the other side running right along the length of the room, but obviously just, just, just completely dark on the other side of the glass. Uh, in the middle of the room, there was this... Uh, chandelier rose crystal beautiful that whole ceiling looks incredible very french empire the care and attention that had gone into this ceiling it was it was second to none second to none it's funny really because uh because actually i'm so wrapped up looking at this ceiling that uh i don't even know this was on the floor in front of me what was it blood stain Huge blood stain, about the size of a kid's paddling pool. It's funny, really, though. The whole way the room was set up, all the detail, all the furnishings, all seemed to like almost intentionally draw your eye up. You know, it's as if almost like like Stanley could control your eye line. You know how like a like a chess player can force their opponent to make a particular move without them even like realizing that they've been influenced just like that you know you don't even realize what kind of room you've walked into until suddenly like standing in a pool of blood (laughs) the whole thing just sort sort of stopped me in my tracks graham yeah um it must have been quite disorientating to find yourself um, in a space like that when, you know, you were already, like, so tired and stressed and... Actually, um, it's quite the opposite, actually. I felt like I had a... Like, I, like I felt like I had, like, like, a flash of clarity. I mean, I walked into that warehouse, yeah, stressed and angry I, mean, I was looking to punch someone if I found anyone in there that was intentionally messing with me yeah. but um I don't know standing there 
middle of the presidential suite. Just for a second, all my uh, emotion, all my confusion, it just all, it all fell away from me. And uh, yeah, for the first time since waking up that morning, I, uh, you know, I kind of felt calm. You realised that uh, you needed to murder Charlie Duval? No. Obviously, that was a bad joke. So, Graham, anyway, what was this uh, this moment of clarity that you had? Just for a second, I'd allowed myself to, like, truly believe that Stanley had planned all of this. Like, not just the stolen radios and the phone call of my mum, but, like, also, like, the noise leading me around in the dark and intentionally leaving all the lights on on this set. But not only that, but, like, like the entire design of this suite, yeah? Like, this, like, whole stage. Like, just for a second, like, I let myself believe that, like, it was all designed specifically for me, right? Like, the wallpaper, the chandelier, the bloodstain. And like letting this idea in, into my head, even just for a second, right? It was like a, it was like a parachute jump. Right? I just needed to give myself that first push, and then it was just like it's like gravity did the rest. And then the idea it just it, it just starts to get stronger and stronger. I just let myself give into it. Had Stanley planned everything? everything like to such a degree that every single thought even that I'd had since coming into work that morning what if every thought that I'd had was actually a thought that he'd wanted me to have was this was this 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 this, this theory Graham like was this something that you like actually truly believed or was it like more like a like a thought experiment was this just something more that you were just kind of imagining what do you think uh, well, it doesn't really matter what I think no, I don't believe that Stanley planned everything the entire set was it designed just for me but like on the night itself I wasn't doing a thought experiment because I, I just don't think the idea would have calmed me down as much as it did if I hadn't forced myself to actually believe it. Why exactly did... Uh, why? Yeah, why Why exactly did this idea calm you down? Like, forcing yourself to believe that your life was actually being puppeted remotely by an extremely powerful, terrifying, hairy man with seemingly infinite resources. Like, why would that be a comforting thought? Do you really need me to answer that? Sorry, I'm not trying to be obstinate here. I was tired. I was lost inside. I was lost, right? I didn't know what the hell I was doing in this building, in this job, in this life, really. But if I believed in Stanley, then I didn't have to consciously decide what to do next with all this information in my head. I didn't have to decide what to do with that. I could just trust my first instinct because Stanley had programmed my instincts through subliminal environmental storytelling, right? So whatever I did, it was gonna be exactly what he wanted me to do. Whatever the rest of this night held for me, I knew that it was out of my hands. Okay. In that moment, what was it that you thought Stanley was like telling you to do next? Well, I had the idea that uh, I would go back to my cupboard, get the typewriter, and then bring it back here to this room and set it up right there on the middle of the bloodstain. I mean, that was just like my natural instinct for what to do next. And yeah, if we say that it was Stanley who somehow subliminally put that thought there. But yeah, that's what Stanley wanted me to do next. Okay. I don't know, it just seemed to make sense to me. 
I don't know why, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Whatever it was about that room, it, it, it made me feel calm. And I just, I wanted to draw on that for the rest of the night. So, yeah. So that's what you do. So, yeah, that's what, yeah, yeah, that's what I do. Rather than go back the way I came, I, uh, I prop open a fire exit, I go and get my typewriter and my paper, and I bring it back to uh, the blood yeah, stain. presidential suite. Yeah. I drag the bureau to the middle of the blood stain and uh, set up my typewriter right in the middle of it. And then uh, you go back to work. I get back to work. Yeah. And um, immediately, it feels different. I feel calm and present. It's like I found this 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 calm, dead center of myself, and um, that's when it happened. What happens? That's the moment where I realize what the book is actually about. So you realize what The Shining's really all about? It's not The Shining. I'm not talking about the fucking Shining. I've never read The Shining. Well, sorry, what book then? Talk about my book. Well, you, what, you know, what? like the one I've been writing for the last five weeks. I finally understood what it was all about. I'm not sure I follow. I mean, it is a book, I suppose. Though, you know, it, it is, as far as books go, it's quite a repetitive one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You make a lot of jokes, don't you? I, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, no. What was your book all about? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. No, no I promise. No, you wouldn't. But you know what? Like, I, I knew that even before I agreed to talk to you. Right, I did. No, it's not your fault. Do you remember what you said earlier about um, how it's better to show, not tell? Yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean, it's more of a guideline than a rule, really. That's why I can't tell you, right? I think the only way for you to understand what this book is about, yeah, is for me to show you. Do you own a typewriter? Uh... Yeah, I think I have one up in the attic, I think. Unless I threw it away, but I don't think I did. Okay, I'm gonna go now. Uh, just cause my TV show's starting in a minute. And uh, so this, this is gonna be a good time for us to take a break anyway. Okay. Why don't you go get that typewriter out of the attic, yeah? Go get it set up. Okay. And um, then let's schedule another call when you're ready, yeah? All right. So I want you to be sat in front of the typewriter when you call me, is that okay? Okay, all right. All right, yeah, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this at midnight. Uh, okay. Okay, yeah. Then you'll find out what the book was really about. Well, this is um, I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm excited. I know I'm probably building this up too much, but this book changed my life for the better. I mean, and um, I, mean, I don't know too much about you, Ross, but uh, yeah, you know, I think it can help you too. I know that things are hard right now with lockdown and everything. You know, I'm sorry to hear about your insomnia, but uh, I don't know. I think this book could help you. Well, Graham, uh, I have no idea how the hell any of this is going to resolve itself, but I'm uh, I'm looking forward to finding out. Me too. Sorry, listen, my show's about to start. I'm afraid I've got to go. Okay, I'll let you know when I found my typewriter. Yeah, you do that. Just out of curiosity, Graham, what's uh, what's the TV show you're watching? It's a show called How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, I watch it every week. It's genius. No, I've not seen it, uh, but uh, yeah, no, 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 I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, should, you should check it out. It's the best thing I've ever seen. All right. Thanks, Graham. Cheers. Okay, so uh, that there is the end of part one of this two-part feature. The concluding part will be on the next episode of this podcast in probably just under a month's time. Uh, Hey, there's a new episode of this podcast every month. Um, Original, all new storytelling and essays all year round. We're just going into our 
seventh year now. Uh, if you're someone who likes uh, Kubrick's The Shining, then you might want to have a look at my Patreon page because uh, last October uh, I released a special Shining-related film to all Patreon supporters on Halloween. Now, this film, it's, it's completely unconnected to the episode you just heard, but it is about The Shining. It's basically a project exploring alternate potential soundtracks to the film. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can find that film by going to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Ross G Sutherland, or one word. Uh, yeah, so you can go there and um, if you want, uh, you can pledge support. Also, anyone who donates $5 or more to my Patreon gets access to a brand new supporter-only podcast series where I revisit past episodes of Imaginary Advice and talk about the development process, themes, structure, etc. The second episode of that series is going to be going up later this week. It's a conversation with musician and podcaster Martin Zoltz-Ostwick talking about uh, episode 47 uh, of this podcast, a.k.a. Me versus the Spa. Uh, if that sounds like something you'd like, again, please go to my Patreon page. Uh, I've put the link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, a huge thank you to everyone who currently supports the show. I'm a small indie podcast with no advertising, so that support is so, so appreciated. Thank you all. You are the the, the hypnotic slinky that baffles the crying baby off my heart okay i'll be back soon with more imaginary advice my name is ross sutherland thanks for listening <laughs>